This morning we return to our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes and I hope your Bible is open at the passage we read a few minutes ago. Last time we we looked at, at Ecclesiastes was a fortnight ago now when we considered the best parts of chapters 5 and 6. The overall theme that we dis- discussed last time was that of dissatisfaction. As you read from verse 8 of chapter 5 right through to verse 9 of chapter 6, you see that there is a real frustration in all that we do. And indeed, that's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is telling us. There's a frustration, there's a disappointment with life in this fallen world. Nothing brings that true enjoyment, peace, security or satisfaction that our hearts and our souls are yearning for. Solomon wrote this book, it's believed out of his own experience, as you read in Kings and Chronicles of his of his turning away from the Lord when he married many foreign wives. It's believed that this book was his his return to the Lord at the end of his life, when he could look on all his riches, all his power and wealth, all that he had, and he could say, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fulfill, and it doesn't even begin to compare to knowing Almighty God. Throughout the book, we have this phrase, there are a few phrases that keep recurring, but one in particular is, under the sun. Everything going on under the sun and the disappointment of life under the sun is meant to make us look beyond the sun, beyond life on this earth, to remember that this life isn't all that there is, that we must reckon with the God who created us and we must reckon with eternity. And that's what Solomon forces to do in this next section, to remember who God is. It's been some weeks now we've been working our way through Ecclesiastes. We're around halfway through the book now. And you'll notice that really the, 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 the content of the book takes a slight turn as we go forward into chapter 7. For the past six chapters, Solomon has been exploring various aspects of life, considering his possessions, his power, all his projects, all his learning, all his wealth, looking at everything he had and realizing that there's limits on everything. Limits to how much we will enjoy life, limits to how much they will fulfill us and meet our needs. But now Solomon wants us to see in the second half of the book that there are also limits to human wisdom. Because of our sin and Adam explained to us in Genesis 3, we are fallen creatures. And even as Christians redeemed in Christ, we're still not yet perfect. We are a new creation, not yet a perfect creation. We still don't have our minds completely captive to God's word. We still make mistakes. We make bad decisions. Our thinking is still flawed. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we need to be transformed by the renewing 
of our minds. And that will continue lifelong until we reach glory. So there are limits to human wisdom. And in reminding us of that, Solomon is teaching us to trust in God's wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes is part of what's known as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, which stretches from Job all the way through to the Song of Solomon. And you notice that in chapter 7 here, the beginning of this chapter reads very much like Proverbs, doesn't it? We have these short, pithy statements that teach us how to live, to apply the wisdom of God to every area of life. And so Solomon begins his next section by taking us to that remembrance of who God is, remembering his power and glory, that he is the creator and that we are the creature. So we've read from chapter 6, verse 10, through to chapter 7, verse 14 this morning. And what we see is that The beginning of this section and the end are like the two bits of bread in a sandwich, holding everything else together. And these two ends are really statements about God's sovereignty. That he is God, that he does what he does. And we as his creatures cannot contend with him. Whatever one is, he has already, he's been named already. For it is known that he is man and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun. We are creatures. We've been given a short window of time on this earth. And very limited knowledge and understanding. But God is God. He has determined our lives, our paths. And nothing can alter his plans. Nothing can affect him or change him. In his eternal counsels, he has already set out the course of history. And that's what Solomon's saying again at the end of this section in chapter 13 of verse 7. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then verse 14, we have to take everything that is given us in this life. It's all been appointed by God. So here we have statements regarding God's sovereignty. And in particular, what we see at the end is statements about God's sovereignty over the trials, tribulations, And bad experiences in our lives. And what we have in between these two statements. Is instruction on how to respond. To God's sovereignty. Over everything in our lives. The reality we have to face up to is that God is the creator. We're the creatures. We cannot contend with him. We cannot challenge him. He does what he wills. We are powerless against him. 
we are powerless to change anything that he does. We do not know what happens next. We do not know what comes after. We do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not know what the rest of this day holds, let alone the rest of our lives. And once we pass from this earth, we have no clue what will take place. But God has all of time and all of history mapped and planned out already. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Great reminder that God is... So why does Solomon begin this next section in this way? Why does he begin by making us face the reality of hard situations in life? Reminding us of the day of adversity and especially the, the difficult words that we read at the beginning of chapter 7 with regard to death and mourning being good. We each come here this morning with our own individual trials. The difficult circumstances will be different for each one of us. But Solomon begins here because he's reminding us that the most important thing we need to know about our trials is that they come from the hand of God. He brought them about for a purpose. And we need to look away from our own wisdom and trust in his wisdom. Because he brings every providence our way in his wisdom. There are things in our lives and we don't want them. And we would never choose them for ourselves. And we would never think that would be the best thing for us. But God gives us to them in his wisdom because he knows they are the best things for us. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which passes like a shadow. Who knows what is good for us? So often we think we know what is good for us. And that we would decide best. But the reality is, if it was left up to us, we would always choose pleasure, prosperity and peace for ourselves. We would carve out the easiest road to heaven for ourselves as possible. We would never choose trials or suffering for ourselves. But you see, ultimately we don't know what is good for us, but God does perfectly. And if you're a Christian, God has a plan for you. That your life would be a testimony of his grace and goodness shown in his son, Jesus Christ. And his purpose in all our trials is to 
transform us and conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Having been saved from our sins by his death at Calvary. To now be prepared for the heavenly glory that awaits. And we don't always see how a particular trial is bringing about good in us. Or how it's making us ready for heaven. But we can take it by faith. In the utmost confidence that God is working it all for our good. As Paul says in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If you're not a Christian this morning, everything you suffer in this life, all the pain and the trials you go through, is just a foretaste of the eternal, unbearable torment that you will suffer in hell as God punishes you for all your sin against him. But God has provided a saviour, his son Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for his people's sins. And if you trust in him and commit your life to him, he will deliver you from your sins and from their punishment in hell. He will save you and he will cause all your trials to make you ready for living with him forever. And that's what he's doing with everything we go through, when we entrust our lives to him, we can know that everything he brings about is for this purpose, that he is using them to wane our hearts away from this world, to mould us and to shape us so that we will depend on him and that we will love all that he loves and hate sin. you're a Christian, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And everything in your life is God's working out that predestined purpose he has for you. And so we can trust God's wisdom in bringing about our trials. Back in the, the 17th and into the 18th century, there was a famous minister who ministered down in the borders of Scotland called Thomas Boston. And in the early 1700s, Thomas Boston wrote a, a little book called The Crook in the Lot. It's a very famous book and it's been used to, to comfort the hearts of many. And it's a, ba a book based on verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Back in those days, books were often given longer titles. And so the subtitle, or the subheading of this book, is God's Sovereignty and Wisdom in Men's Affliction. All our afflictions come 
from God's sovereignty and from God's wisdom. We cannot change what God brings about in our life, but we can trust him in all he brings about in our lives. And Boston says that God uses our afflictions to bless and to uplift his people. He shows how God will use them for our goods. But he also reminds us that we have a duty in affliction. Whatever comes to pass in our lives, it is still our calling to honour and glorify God in them. And so we can trust him. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see Paul having such an experience. He wanted that thorn in his side to be removed. He begged God to remove it. Three times praying earnestly. But God's answer was no. Paul had to learn to surrender to God. God comforted and strengthened him, reminded him that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Because we all think we would live more faithfully for God, we'd be more useful to God, we could do more for God if we didn't have these trials, if we weren't burdened and bound by them. We'd be better Christians. That's our wisdom. Give me the easiest life possible, I'll do the most for you, God. But God's wisdom is not our wisdom. His ways are infinitely higher than our own. As high as the heavens are above the earth. And God says, no, my power will be shown in you. Not by removing your trials. But by, by beautifying you in them. And showing that it's not really you working on your own. But my power is at work in you. In them. So Solomon tells us in verse 14 to take each day from God whatever it brings. Take the good with the bad. Now Solomon's already written plenty on the days of prosperity, of enjoying God's gifts. You just have to look at the end of of chapter 5 to see that. And he's not contradicting himself by what he goes on to say in chapter 7. He's given us the teaching for the days of prosperity. Now he's teaching us to prepare for the days of adversity as well. What we have to know is that our trials come from God and he has a purpose for them. When was the last time you did a jigsaw? When we do a jigsaw, we like to to get a framework in place. We like to get it laid out. We start with the corners. We add in the edges, and then we try and fill in the middle. And as we start out filling in the middle, there are huge gaps in it. We've got a rough idea of what the picture's meant to look like. But then perhaps, as you go through all the pieces, you see one piece, and you look at the jigsaw and you think, I have no idea where that piece fits into the jigsaw. The colours don't seem to match. They're dark. I can't tell where in the picture it would go. It's like that with our trials. We can think, why has this come along? How can this possibly serve for my good as a Christian? How can God possibly mean for this to be part of the plan? Where does it fit in? 
if our lives are the jigsaw, well, remember, God's the one building the jigsaw. And not only that, but God's the one who designed the jigsaw. And he knows exactly where each piece fits in. He knows exactly why he has to bring to pass the things that he does in our lives. And sometimes he tells us why. And sometimes he keeps it from us in his goodness to us. And tells us just to keep going in him. Our trials are tailor-made. And we don't know how all the different things in our lives fit together. But he does. We can trust him. So what do we have in between? Well, in between these two statements, we have some teaching on how to live in response to the more difficult providences. There's two things I want us to consider briefly as we have application. Firstly, that when difficult trials and providences come along, there are things to accept. And secondly, there are things to reject. So firstly, we accept the bad days. And we trust that God is working good out through them. As Job said to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Take it all from God's hand. And what, what's being said in the first few verses of chapter 7 is that God does more in us spiritually in the bad days than in the good days. You read these verses, they're striking. They're, there's a sort of uncomfortableness about them, particularly if you have... You have suffered loss and bereavement recently, which, as we heard this morning, another family in our, in our congregation is now suffering. So what do we make of these verses? The day of death, better than the day of one's birth, better to go than the house of, to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon's not being cynical. And I realise there are some of you still mourning today, and some of you who have been bereaved in recent times, and further back who still carry that sense of grief and loss. What do we make of these verses? We have to keep in place what we've seen already. They're from the heart of God. They're from the hand of God. Solomon's saying, you'll learn more at a funeral than you will at a party. You don't just hear powerful sermons from pulpits. Every time you see a coffin, every time you see a gravesite, there's a sermon being preached to you. It's a reminder of the big important things in life. It's a reminder of where we are all going. 
that eternity must be reckoned with. And often the Lord is pleased to use bereavement in someone's conversion. Often he uses it to bring people back to him, to walk closely with him again. And knowing these things doesn't necessarily make it any easier at the time as you walk through the valley. We can know that when we are the Lord's, he will sanctify and bless these things to us more than every party and every frivolity. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6 as well. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. God often uses the more unpleasant things for our good than the pleasant. Solomon saying it's better to feel the unpleasant sting of a rebuke from a wise person. It's better to be corrected by them, even though that's embarrassing and unpleasant for a time. We'll get more out of that than being among the laughter and singing of fools who just want to forget about life. They go to places, they do things, they take substances to try and forget about the harsh realities of life. But really it's empty. It's pointless. That's what Solomon means when he says about the crackling of thorns under a pot. What purpose do thorns have? Well, they're not wood. You can't use them for building. You can't do anything with them. You can't grow anything on them. All that they do is get thrown in the fire and they crackle and that's it. We live in an entertainment driven world where it's all about the next laugh, the next evening that can be passed having our our concentration dealt with but the reality is we're all on our way to eternity and there are bigger things one must think about what about the state of your soul where are you with God this day And if you pass from this world this day, where will you be for eternity? Do you know Jesus Christ? Because there is one death. His death by which God has brought life to this world. And that's where the wisdom of God is ultimately seen. In Jesus Christ the wisdom and power of God. And as you look at what happened there to him, as you read the Gospels, that innocent man being punished for things he did not do, for simply speaking the truth. Many think, well, where was God in that? 
God was working out his purposes through evil, unbelieving men who put him on the cross. Because ultimately that was the plan and the mission God had for him. And so more than any of us, Jesus knew what it was to trust God in the midst of trials. To keep going through with his Father's will and mission. And in doing so, he has brought life to all who will call on him. He died and rose again and lives evermore and grants eternal life to all who will trust on him and ask him for it. So we accept the bad days. Even the ones that are really bad. Why? Because we know God is working out his sovereign purposes in them according to his perfect wisdom. Things to accept, but finally things to reject. And what we see really in verse 7 down to verse 10 is wrong responses. Wrong wrong responses to affliction. We actually begin in verse 1. Look at the first verse. A good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment was an expensive luxury that only the very rich could afford. But there's something better to have in life than that. And that is to, to have a good name. That is for others to look on your life and see that even in all that came to pass in your life, you lived uprightly, you lived honorably and honestly for the Lord. So when afflictions come, don't just give up and don't just live for luxury and say, right, I'll just focus on things now. Nothing matters. Don't grow cynical. Live for the honour of God. And as well as giving yourself a good name, give Christ a good name. Commend him. Praise him and trust him in all your adversity that the world may see what a good and gracious and faithful saviour he is. That he leads his people through the darkest of valleys. Then in verse 7. Don't turn on others. Don't oppress others. Don't become corrupt. Don't accept a bribe. Our sufferings are not an excuse to sin. They're not an excuse to lower the moral, our moral standards. You can't just say, oh well, life was hard. I had this and that going on. That's when we're weak. It's when the devil will seek to get in and cause us to sin. That's when we need to be most on our guard. And most in prayer. When our mental and emotional faculties are under stress grief we don't give in we don't change the goalposts for how we live so reject corruption verse 8 reject impatience The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Don't make rash decisions. Learn patience. Learn to trust God. Learn to trust his deliverance and his timing. There are rarely quick fixes in life. Don't take matters rashly into your own hands. Don't just try and get results. Try to get things sorted when you're not thinking clearly. Don't try and deliver yourself through sinful methods. Trust in God. Reject impatience. Verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So reject a spirit of anger, of bitterness, of resentfulness. Don't allow yourself to grow cold and cynical, but rather be thankful in every situation. Know that God is working. Keep your heart set upon him. Don't be tempted to think that God hates you. Don't become that person that goes, grows in on themselves, that shuts others out, and that never has a good word to say. If Satan can't take us to hell with him, he wants to destroy our usefulness for God in our days in this world. And when we allow these feelings to be harboured and to set in, that's what will happen. So in everything, give thanks. And verse 10, reject a nostalgia that's always hankering back to the past. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning us. The good old days were never as good as we remember them. That's true spiritually as well. We live now. Now it's good to, to remember the past. It's good to remember the good times we had spiritually as well when we felt more on fire. Be thankful for those good times. Absolutely. But we live now. What are things going to be today? What about going forward? Don't be someone always yearning back for the past or thinking that that was the time. That those were your days. Today is your day. Today is your day for living now in Christ. We can't live in those past days anymore. Now the goodness of them may come again. But we can't have our identity in the past. It has to be in today and how we are living in Christ today. So face up to today, no matter how hard it is. And go into the future with confidence. The past is behind, there's lessons we learn, good times given. 
but we must keep pressing on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we're told in verses 11 and 12 to seek the wisdom of God. Now wisdom, biblical wisdom, begins with the fear of God, with knowing who God is, and seeking to know him, to live for him, to fear him, to love him, to serve him. As you read Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that's what it means by wisdom. It's not like the old worldly philosophers and all the wise sayings then, like Aesop's fables or something. Biblical wisdom is so much more than that, and it's centred on who God is. Seek him and seek to live in light of who he is. And it gives life. And it's ultimately found in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. And true wisdom is responding to that command that he gives you first and foremost. Which is to repent and believe in him. And you will find life in him. And we can know that he is with us in our trials. In all we go through, he walks before us and leads us by the hand. But if this isn't a day of trial for you, well, in your prosperity, don't forget God. Moses warned the people not to forget God in the land of promise. When they went in, when they took the land, when they began to build cities and get comfortable, they were reminded, don't forget the Lord your God. Because so often in prosperity we do, we get so focused on the gifts when they're in abundance that we forget the giver. So, our trials come from God's hand. Accept them. Surely has, God has appointed them. But because God has appointed them, that doesn't mean that he has stopped caring for you. Just the opposite. It's because he does care for you. And in them, he's teaching us to remember how much we need him. And he's using them to grow us in likeness to Jesus. I've been reading some of Samuel Rutherford's sermons recently and... He says in one of them that as the saints of God, we have a covenant right to affliction. We have a covenant right. Because we are in covenant with God, we have a right to affliction. It's how God will grow us and sanctify us and make us holy. So remember that our trials come from God's hand and if you are in Christ, those trials come from the hand of your heavenly Father who loves you. The great hymn writer William Cowper in one of his hymns has this line. Behind a frowning providence there hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are high and mighty and 
from eternity you have foreordained and decreed all things and you do so in wisdom and in love for your people give us the faith we ask to trust you in every trial keep us from doubting you keep us from growing bitter and cynical and from turning from you oh keep us in your love we pray and keep the love in our hearts burning for you lord god please minister your word to us today please be with us as a church family go before us we ask in jesus name amen we finish by singing psalm 31 psalm 31 in the scottish psalter we sing from verse 19 to the end Psalm 31, singing from verse 19. That's on page 243 of the Blue Psalm books. And we sing from verse 19 to verse 24. How great's the goodness thou for them that fear thee keeps in store, and wrought's for them that trust in thee the sons of men before. In secret of thy presence thou shalt hide them from man's pride. From strife of tongues thou closely shalt, as in a tent them hide. All praise and thanks be to the Lord, for he hath magnified his wondrous love to me within a city fortified. For from thine eyes cut off I am, I in my haste had said. My voice yet heardst thou, when to thee with cries my moan I made. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, because the Lord doth guard the faithful. And he plenteously, proud doers, doth reward. Be of good courage, and he strength unto your heart shall send. All ye whose hope and confidence doth on the Lord depend. Psalm 31, we sing from verse 19 to the end.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.